Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that we can open the Bible together, pray for Pastor Eric as he preaches the word to us, that we'd open our hearts to believe the truth and get, ask you for grace to live it out. And we ask you to give us wisdom from the book of Acts as this applies to what you've called us to do and believe and live. And we do pray that you'd give uh, healing and help to the people that are suffering that we know and give us grace to live lives that would bring glory to your name. We ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. Launch. Slideshow. From beginning. We're going to go into chapter 20. So, there's a lot of detail here to introduce this. The last time we had what we would call we passages in Acts. Do you know what we passages are? Luke is there. Now, some of the critical people say, well, it's just the narrator wanting to focus the narration, but that doesn't make any sense because the the details are focused no matter what. And Luke is an honorable writer of history. You can see that from the beginning of Luke chapter 1. And one of the things that I found encouraging was when Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who's a great expert on the Middle East culture, and his uh, materials have been very helpful to understand Luke and other uh, gospels that have the parables, pointed out that in their ancient culture, claiming to be somewhere where you're not is dishonorable. Luke was really there where he wouldn't say this. Furthermore, in Luke 1, Luke talked about eyewitnesses. So one of the things that accounts for the accuracy and the details that we see in the Gospel of Luke and in also in the book of Acts, it's the fact that Luke was there in Acts as a companion at some of the travels. So we'll see that here. And the point of this chapter 20, as Paul would go back through some of the previous churches that have been established earlier, is to bring encouragement to various disciples. As we see, we'll go to verses 1 and 2. We'll look at the word parakaleo, which has a range of meaning. It can mean exhort, comfort, admonish, or whatever. And we need all of that. That is always necessary. So even when the apostles were still alive and ministering in history, there were already wolves, false teachers, uh, people to be trying to pull people astray, give them, give them ideas that weren't accurate. We see that in the epistles to Timothy. It's even worse today. So we need to be exhorted, comforted, and so on, and reminded of the faith once we're all handed down to the faith, to the saints. Acts 21, 
verses 1 and 2. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. So the theme here is set with this word parakaleo. Now, if I remember right, I think the second usage may be a different word. I didn't print the Greek, so I'll, I'll look in a moment. I think I have it with my, one of my commentaries. But the, there's, there's other words that could be translated that. But this bigger word, parakaleo, is very important. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is called the comforter, sometimes as a noun, the paraclete. And comfort or exhort, the term can mean exhortation or um, admonishment or encouragement. And I, I, I love how the range of meaning suits the needs of each person, which may be different in the congregation. We all need the same thing, but some people need encouragement because they're discouraged. Others are boldly going somewhere they shouldn't. They need to be admonished. And all of us need to know that the comforter, the Holy Spirit who indwells those who are born of God will bring us ultimately to glory. It says that in Romans chapter 8. So I wrote an article once called Carried by the Comforter. The word ago means to lead or bring or carry. So some would say uh, ago, I'm thinking about Romans 8, means give us information so we can figure out something that's going to work. But that's not the context of Romans 8, or is it here? What we need to know is the word of God. What we need to know are the promises of God. And what we need to be comforted by is that God who gave the promise, who indwells us, God the Spirit, is going to bring us all the way to glory using the means that he describes in the Bible here. Okay? And so that's why we teach the word of God. So he sent for the disciples and exhorted them, taking his leave. Now, Paul had previously preached the gospel. Churches were established. And one thing that we can do, and I don't, I want, we all have different needs. I could go into great detail integrating this with passages in 2 Corinthians and elsewhere in Acts and in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, because all of this uh, kind of integrates. On this trip was when Paul wrote Romans, which would have been around 56, 50, when was Romans? 57, 56, 57. So the historical time frame, a lot of things happened during this time, including the writing of epistles. Let me just give you an idea I have here in my notes from Dr. Schnabel. By the way, I like to commend good commentaries. This one, I think, was it just recently came out. Schnabel. Do I have the footnote? 2012. Well, that's pretty new for a commentary. 
And the Greek is in here, but you don't have to know it. You can just follow the English. He has some details. He says, Paul's comment in 2 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13, said it suggests that he traveled from Ephesus north to Troas, where he had where he had remarkable opportunities for the proclamation of the gospel. When he entered Macedonia, he certainly would have visited the churches he'd established in Philippi, uh, Acts 16, 11 through 40, Thessalonica, Acts 17, 1 through 9, and Berea, 17, 10 through 15. Paul's comment in Romans 15, 19 suggests he traveled from Macedonia to Illich, Elicrium, is that right? Yes. The next province to the west and perhaps to test his ability to function in Latin-speaking environment before embarking on his mission to Spain, which we're not sure happened or did not happen, mentioned in Romans 15, 24 and 25. In Greece, churches existed in Athens, 17, 16 and 17, 32 and 34. Chencrea, Romans 16, 1, Acts 18, 18, and Corinth, Acts 18, 1 through 22. You don't need to know all that, but I want you to know it's there. Okay? And at some point, I pray, we need to pray that God will raise up people with a hunger for truth and scholarship because we don't know how long the Lord's going to allow history to go. And I don't know what's going to happen because the seminaries that we knew are more interested in a neogram and spiritual formation and every other sort of thing that can't actually sanctify anybody. So where the education comes, I can't tell you, but it's still needed. The materials there, the scholarly commentaries are there. The historical data is there. And I think it's ironic that just when we have the material we need to verify the historicity of the facts in the Bible, the evangelical church is not interested in facts. They're more interested in states of consciousness. Okay, so why are we surrendering the battle just when it's winnable in the minds of the religious person out there. Well, we shouldn't, and we won't. We're going to tell you that these places exist. The facts continue to be verified. The, the reality is there now that political stability in the ancient Near East has allowed excavations to go on. <coughs> We can find these places, and I don't have, uh, I suppose I could use how Eric does it, but somebody else point this out. This, okay, here's Ephesus. There we go. See Ephesus? Is that right? Ephesus. Then we go up there. Troas is up here, right? And then we go across to Philippi up here. Macedonia would be the northern area of Greece, and then down the coast here. Some of that by sea. So that's the journey that Paul will go on. And so the this is from that uh, those maps and pictures I bought that can be integrated with Acts. 
So after the uproar ceased, what was the uproar? Remember that? Say it last week. The theater in Ephesus. The disciples told Paul, don't go in there. It's going to be worse. And he didn't go. And Alexander, a Jewish man, and some Christians went in there and a civil authority intervened and said, okay, they, got, they had their two hours of riot. That's enough. If you got a problem, you're not making enough money selling your idols, then take it to the courts. So it settled down. Paul didn't get in the middle of something that would have ended who knows how in Ephesus because in the bigger scheme of things, he's heading to Jerusalem. That's the key place in Luke Acts is Jerusalem. So what's happening is that um, Paul is going to now go back and comfort the churches where he's already been. And that's what this is about. And what he did there, he is giving them exhortation and encouragement and uh, helping people to grow. Now, one of the things that I wanted to mention, the hardest thing, it seems, right now for everyone is to have a, a reasonable definition of the church. What is the Christian church? What is the Christian doctrine? And what is a Christian? And the reason it's so difficult now, let's look at how it was in this situation. When Paul got to any one of these places, how many different church buildings did he have to go find? They didn't have any. They gathered here and there in a very simple manner. And the Christians that did exist knew one another because whether they'd been uh, uh, Hellenized Jews or more Hebraic type Jews or whether they were intellectuals like in Athens, very few were saved, or whether they were utter pagans or philosophers, whatever they were. Once they are born of God, they're part of the family of God and they had a certain relational integrity that didn't require massive infrastructure to function. We know in Philippi, Lydia was a key person who facilitated the church there. And now from these we passages, it's likely that Luke stayed there in Philippi this whole time. And when Paul got back there, Luke was still there. That seems to be what's indicated here. But these places really exist. And we can see pictures of things which I show you. And I know that you believe this. But the thing that is difficult for every one of us and our kids and our grandchildren as we witness to them is this idea of the church as a few people gathered who believe the Bible and they pray for one another and they admonish and comfort and exhort one another as needed and they visit one another and they do the things that Christians do, baptize converts, Remember the Lord's death till he comes. That's simple Christianity. But what is seen out there as Christian, how could you figure it out? And I know we can't erase history or erase our own experiences. And I mentioned this last week. I happen to not sleep very well. And I wake up. If I would sleep till four, that's a great day. 
And so one day I woke up at four, turned on the TV. Here's the funeral for Queen Elizabeth. And I mean, that's amazing pageantry. And I'm not making any comment. It seems to me that she, at least by common grace, was a fantastic person. Uh, and for, for all we know, she really believed by the gospel. But it shouldn't be that there are so many layers of all this stuff that if somebody actually does believe, it would be a, it's, a, it's always a miracle. But you have to just, what is this? What is all of this stuff? Did God say, go thou and build massive tabernacles, layers of authority, pomp, circumstance, shiny gold, objects, idols, all of that. That's what I want. That'll glorify God. Do you believe that glorifies God? No. In order to the cathedrals. You know what a cathedral is? It's a massive structure that would be more like what the pagans have. Yes, Paul. So my point is this. That isn't always what happens. Uh, somebody mentioned that, have you seen this thing for the younger people now? He gets you. Yeah, yeah that's been in the news. I saw that at the background of a baseball game where they were flashing that he gets you. Well, somebody said, well, that's supposed to be for really young people. I, I can't, what is it? Baby boomer, Gen X, I don't, Gen X, Y, Z, millennial. Listen, it's not going to convert my soul if I feel like Jesus gets me. In fact, it should scare us. It should. He knows everything about me. And that means I need grace and comfort. But what, what I didn't get was that I was under the wrath of God. Yes, Paul. Go oh, here. I got to turn this up. Testing, testing, testing. Okay. Matthew 28 is the Great Commission where you go and make disciples. Well, Paul went to Ephesus and he made disciples. Right. And therefore, he, uh, when he called the disciples that he made, would it be correct to think that the disciples were the leadership of the church in Ephesus? He, he, what he brought, no, he brought the same gospel that he brought to start with. And, he, and it com- what does it say? That through the admonition and comfort of the scriptures, you might have hope. Is that right, Eric? Yeah. What verse is that? I'm, this is a test. No. Romans? 15. Romans 15. Through the admonition and the scriptures, you might have hope. The promises of God. Now, I'm glad you brought up Matthew 28. There is right now massive movements that are reminding me of the 80s where different segments of Christianity are wanting to get together to, to teach dominion theology, that the Christians are going to take dominion over everything. In the 80s, it was Earl Polk and descendants of Rush Duty North and whoever the Bonson, who are the dominionists? And the reform. So the charismatic and the reform were going to get together and take dominion. But that blew up and came to nothing in the late 80s. So, but think about this. Does Matthew 28, when it says go and disciple the ethne, mean take dominion over geopolitical entities and make them do what you want them to do? Does it mean that? Did Paul ever apply it that way? Did Paul ever go to Ephesus and say, 
All right, Ephesus, this is it. The Christians are taking over. You're done with this. We're going to blow up this uh, Artemis and make you be Christian whether you want to or not. Now, that's what Gary North and his father-in-law, Rush Dunian people, I wrote a theological essay about that. That's how they interpret it. That's kind of a reformed version of it. No, a disciple can be made anywhere where somebody can hear and believe the gospel. A disciple is someone born of God, trusting Christ alone, growing in grace by the word of God alone, and saved by grace through faith and to the glory of God. That sort of disciple has existed the entirety from the day of Pentecost until the Lord does come, there will be those disciples everywhere. And when you get there, anywhere, it doesn't take long to find out who's the disciple. Did you notice that? I, I, I don't travel now, but um, when I did, it's interesting. We were asked one time to go to a seminary in Minnesota. It was a, a, some sort of a Lutheran seminary because they were concerned about theophosity counseling. But when I got there and had lunch with some pastors and seminary professors, there's people who love the Lord here and there. That doesn't mean we need to be ecumenical, but true disciples who know Christ can be identified by their love for the truth wherever you might find them. Here's the big kicker. Christendom did not exist when Paul went on his journey. Did he go to a Christianized Asia Minor? There's no such thing. Did he go to a Christianized Athens? There's no such thing. How about a Christianized Philippi? There's no such thing. Christianized anything. Christian wasn't a verb. It was a noun, a person who was born of God. So when he got there, he found disciples. And they had the same hunger for the word of God that you do. Now we, because of the fact of religious ideas and deception, it's a lot of work just to stay in the faith. The, the power of darkness is all around us, drawing us away. So we have to do this over and over again, trying to keep in the faith, to encourage one another, and to teach one, this will never go away, this need. So when you see at a baseball game, he gets you, and you think, oh, I feel better about Christians. They, Jesus gets me. Um, I suppose that that means you don't have to feel bad about saving, I mean, living your life for Satan. You don't have to feel bad about that. Jesus gets you, how you feel insecure or whatever. Go ahead. That's a scary thing. I mean, society hates Jesus. They have. They hate Jesus, and all of a sudden they're embracing him in advertisements. Gruesome Newsom was just, uh, the Fredericksons were saying that uh, Newsom has got a campaign that they are, he's using Jesus, using verses to promote abortion. Well, that's, that's American Christianity it always has a ver- political aspect to it. And that's part of our history, but it doesn't help having all of this stuff happen. We need to define our terms. What is the one problem of the entire human race? Everybody, anybody, anywhere, 
any time, any culture, any period of history, wherever they may have lived, including today, what is the one problem? Sin. Sin. I have, I, uh, I was talking to Brian about this earlier because uh, he got here early and we were talking about what's the big problem with theology today? A lack of appreciation for the doctrine of the fall. If human race has not fallen, lost in sin, alienated from God, facing God's wrath, then you start thinking the human race is reformable. Somehow we could fix it if we had the right technology, the right ideas. Uh, Have you seen, well, we know how to solve this problem. We're going to get robotic, what what do they call that, Brian, we were talking about? They're going to sort of a Meta person, part robot, part person. Transhuman. Yeah, transhuman. So now that's our version of eternal life. Do you think that's going to work out? Do you think the transhuman is subject to entropy? Entropy means everything's dissolute. Now, think about this in this big context. What about the message that shows up in every single sermon in the book of Acts? the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why did Paul preach that on Mars Hill? Why did he preach it in, um, where was he in Acts 13? Samaria? Where, somebody will have to help me with that one. Acts 13, Acts 14, there's long messages of Paul. The resurrection is in every sermon. Peter preached it on Pentecost when all the people were there. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only hope, not transhuman robotics. Now, why would the message of Jesus Christ raised from the dead be the one message that was taught and preached to every person and every culture they encountered? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Hopefully to Spain, we know that's going on. Because... There is the only way there's any real hope. Why? Because in Adam, all died. Original sin. It comes up also in some of these other discussions. We were doing a podcast, um, and it just came to me that the, the very conservative versions of Kingdom Now and the emergent version of uh, that's out there, which is just a new version of liberalism, have the same problem. Even if you get what you want, you still have a fallen world, and people die and are facing the wrath of God. There's no perfection now. So here's the, the one thing everybody needs to know. In Adam, all die. And some say, well, we need to change the pronouns and everything so people feel good. You know, he gets you. Listen. The problem isn't pronouns. The problem is we're alienated from God. We're lost. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, meaning human beings. That doesn't go away because you decide you can go to church and feel good. I believe this, he gets you, 
campaign, by the way, uh, uh, monetarily funded by uh, a group of uh, millionaires who put in hundreds of millions of dollars into this thing, and I believe it's of the evil one. I think it's deception on the evil one's part because... Although you could get people saved through that, what you're doing is you're putting false sense of security into these people, and it actually keeps people away from the true gospel. One thing, I don't want to mislead anyone. I know that God uses less than perfect gospel presentations to save people because a lot of us came to the Lord that way. But... One thing is true for those. However, you may have, uh, I heard about the gospel. I knew immediately when God convicted me that I was going to hell. And before, I didn't believe there was a hell. And even the pastors at the church said there was no hell. But how how would anybody believe that? God convicts you, and you know it. Yes, go ahead. And when you were talking about these ornate churches, like with the the queen's death and and all of mm-hmm. that, uh, Jesus said, "Where two or more are gathered in my name." So you have underground churches all over China, Iran, yeah. Iraq all over the world. Mm-hmm. So that's a Western thing. That's how the West has polluted uh, uh, the gospel. The, well, the hard problem we face, all of us, whether we know it or not, is to preach the truth and practice the truth in a Christendom, Christianized world. Because we know certain things because we're Christian, but if you do nothing about any of this and you looked around and you saw all of it, what would you think Christianity is? He gets you or join us. We've been around for, we have the Vatican. Okay, look at us. We've been around forever. Just come back to Rome. Or, well, I, I thought that was a pretty amazing funeral, which frankly it was. Maybe I should join Episcopal, which is American version of the Church of England or Anglican. Maybe I should join this or maybe I should join that. Here's a different idea. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust him. Every person who's born of God has, is born again with one thing that's true. We have a love for the truth. How can I say that? How can I make that claim? Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And what did they say to him in Acts, or excuse me, John chapter 8? If though they said they believed, yes, good, we believe. This, oh, I'm out of order there. My first citation is from John 14. But some who believed, he said, if you continue in my word, continue in my way, You'll be my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth sets you free. What did they say in John 8? We've never been in bondage. We have Abraham. If you won't admit you're in bondage, you'll never listen to the truth. So then look at John 8. They fight and they debate. Finally, Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil. He didn't say, I get you. (laughs) No. 
You're going to die in your sins. They told him he had a demon. Go ahead. And and God doesn't need America to get his to to move his plan forward like your uh, Dutch sheets would. Uh, I say your Dutch sheets would would say. Well, we're doing a podcast about some of the stuff that's happening. We need to be sober-minded, dear saints, and be good citizens and be encouraged. I'm here today to help us encourage each other because it's very discouraging. The world that I see right now is not Iowa in the 1950s where I grew up. But maybe I'm just too romantically inclined, which no one would accuse me of. But... um, it is kind of idyllic of to think about that. But, you know, I, what can I say? Um, uh, if the car fix, goes down the road, who cares if it's rusty, put a little foam in the, you know. Um, I have to remind myself that in that beautiful situation where rural Iowa, we took care of each other, World War II vets were all of our, the adults that we knew in the world are World War I vets. But I went to church and was told God doesn't do miracles. The good Lord would never send anybody to hell. He just wants us to be good people, take care of the people around us. And that's what I was told. So it was just as wicked. It just didn't look that way. It seemed nicer. But it was still lost. I asked four different ordained ministers about the Bible because I had my doubts about it being a student of science. And they all told me miracles never happened. It's just stories to make us feel better. So maybe we're a little romantic thinking that whether it's the funeral of Queen Elizabeth or the pomp and circumstance of Rome or the idyllic country church down in Iowa... It was just close by because they couldn't travel very far. They had, when they built the churches, they had horses to get there. It's all idyllic, but the fall is still real. So why is the gospel such that the resurrection has to be preached, the, the definitive miracle, the center of history, that ultimately is the miracle, the resurrection of Christ? Because Jesus Christ is unique. He, the eternal creator, God the Son, John 1, 1 through 18, came into our world, which he created, was born of a virgin. The things he said, he carried out, he predicted, he did it. The things he did were unique, and no one else did. And even in John, they said, well, we have Moses. What did Jesus say to that? Moses wrote about me. What did God the Father say about that when Moses and Elijah were with him on transfiguration? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. When did Moses write about Jesus? Deuteronomy 28, 15. God will raise up another prophet like me. And when he, Moses said, when he does listen to him, that's Jesus Christ. So this is the gospel. And if you don't have the resurrection... If you don't have a doctrine of the fall, if human beings are not dead in Adam, they're just a little misguided, then it all goes apart. It falls to pieces. 
And if Christ is not preached for who he is and what he did and why we need him, we have no message. It doesn't matter if I think he gets me. And it doesn't matter if the... I mean, they, they try... When I was being witnessed to during those months between believing in a creator based on chemical engineering, or I mean, organic chemistry, but not still being a pagan, and then being witnessed to, they brought me to a little Baptist church and the pastor knew I was coming, so I preached against science. Science is evil. And so I thought, well, so I'm going to become a Christian because they, the pastor found out I've studied science, so he preached a sermon about how evil science is. Well, I thought, well, that's goofy. Why would I want that? So am I a wicked sinner because I study science? It wasn't even the right category. But the moment I knew that God was real and that I was going to hell, it was a miracle. It was like, what did Luther say in his case? Lightning bolt from heaven. Is that right? Boom. Hell is real. I don't care what the pastor said. I know if I don't repent, I'm going to appear before that judgment seat and I'll be lost. That's the message that has to go behind the hope of the resurrection of the dead. What happened when there was one of these uproars? Didn't they say, I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection for the dead? Is that correct? It's in Acts. Why would you say that? Here is the besetting problem in our country here and all around the world. Two deficient of a doctrine of the fall. So we misrepresent the problem, which makes it possible to misrepresent the solution. Amen. And if we're not fall, fallen and dead in Adam, then it's possible for reformation of the person without being born of God. If there is a fall, then all you can have is restraint there will be enough restraint to keep civilization in order so that the gospel can function. That's how I see it. That would be God's solution according to the table of nations. And that's mentioned, by the way, in Acts 17. Um, Eric, could you turn to Acts 17 and just maybe start around verse 2? Yeah. So there were people scattered in all these places who had believed uh, the gospel, and they had the Lord, some scriptures from the Old Testament and the teachings of the apostles, and they had each other and the means of grace. And then we'll go on. Acts 17.2? Yeah, then look ahead. And just, if you, you probably know this. Yeah. What's, what's going on in yeah, Acts I'll read. 17? And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them through the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Right. So there's the basic message earlier in Acts. That was after Philippi. So why, did, why is he saying had to, why did this have to happen? Okay. He reasoned from the scriptures. Deal legomai. He reasoned from the scriptures. This had to be in Acts 17. Because of the fall. Because look at, look at Peter's uh, speech in uh, Pentecost. There's a man who was raised from the dead. 
the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If we can just get that right, if we can get that right, then we have a message that's not going to use whether we're lacking resources or not, whether we have a massive building or not, whether we have a massive worldwide uh, outreach uh, or not, or whether we have tons and tons of talented people that can do it, this, that, that. There's, there's different things that happen. But if we don't have any of that, we still have something. And what's the value of that person, who, the one person who comes to faith and trusts Christ and will be with us for all eternity? What's the value of that? The mic back to Luann. What's the value of that? Well, what a pathetic thing. You baptize one person. It's not pathetic. It's awesome. Uh, when I just thought of how God orchestrates this so uniquely and just miraculously because, you know, in the ancient world, they had so many gods. And Eric actually said that a few weeks ago, that the problem wasn't the people didn't believe in a god. They had many gods, Athena, Zeus, Apollo, all of them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they were always looking for this liberator savior. And so when it came time for Passover, Lamb Selection Day, and all these people flooded into Jerusalem and it just swelled, you know, um, many times its normal size. And they just happened to stumble on this period of history where they see this Messiah crucified. And then they hear about who this man was. They go back to wherever they came from. And after a few weeks, you know, just like us, we'd be kind of going back into our regular life, work, wondering what just happened? What did I witness on that lamb selection day? And so Paul coming into Ephesus in these regions again, how encouraging that would be that, yes, what you saw, what you heard that particular time frame was unique. And just like the um, on the road to Emmaus before the men were, it was revealed who they were talking to. They said to Jesus, were you born you know, under a rock, you don't know what just happened. <laughs> and then Jesus Did revealed everything yeah. through the scriptures that, yeah, that's what happened. I mean, it's just all so amazing. What did they say? Wasn't our heart burning within us? Wow, that would have been a great uh, travel place, being with Jesus after the resurrection, having him explain the scriptures. But you know what? We can do that. We know what scriptures he explained. Because he preached on them earlier. We can't literally be there, but we can tell what those scriptures were. You know what they had to prove everywhere they went in synagogues? Jesus had to suffer. Because what they were looking for was someone to defeat their enemies now and not a suffering, rejected Messiah. Jesus had to suffer. This had to happen because it was prophesied. If we didn't have the suffering servant, we would have no hope of the future conquering king. Isn't that amazing? Now, here's the, what we have to get right. No matter who gathers together where, we got to get the basic doctrines, the fall, the personal work of Christ, the scriptures are what they claim to be, the very word of God, and get that right. If we can know what the truth is, then we, 
want to learn it. The great gift that anyone ever receives is a love for the truth. What happens to those who won't welcome the love for the truth? They'll be deceived. Who is deceived by Antichrist when he shows up? The Antichrist spirit's already here. Those who do not welcome the love of the truth so as to be saved. What a shame if someone welcomes the love of the truth when they hear the gospel and they come to Christ and they go to church and then someone says, well, what a pathetic Christian you are. Look at you. You should be able to do better than this. And then they come up with something else that's temporal rather than eternal. So when Paul went encouraged these saints, comfort, some need exhortation. No, you can't live the Christian life this way. This is what God wants, according to Scripture, exhortation, and so on. And then there was a plot, Acts 20, verses 3 through 4. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia, and he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychius, and Trophimus of Asia. Now, why would we Luke tell us of these different persons accompanying Paul. Well, on the very surface of this, it shows us something about the composition of the very earliest churches after Pentecost when the gospel went forth, according to the Acts 1 and verse 8, and in the end, the Great Commission, the end of Luke 24. Look at the names. They're different nationalities, Latin, Greek, um, Timothy, Jewish. The church is comprised of whomever God saves. Okay? You don't bring something to the table. It's not a defeated attitude to say the only thing I had was my sin. God took that and gave me new life. I was born of God and he gives various gifts according to his will. Now, as we get through 1 Corinthians, I think you'll be surprised to see we've already learned that we can't tell who has the better gift. We'll also be surprised to see what gifts are listed. Helps. Okay, I want that one. Well, it doesn't matter. Honoring God with whatever he gave us as we serve him and one another is honorable and brings glory to God and he can decide in the future and will what is rewarded. First Corinthians 3. The, it's so hard to get rid of, but we, quit, we have to just quit thinking, what are they thinking about me? Who does good? Who's bad? Who did the best? Who did the worst? Get it out of our minds. It's hard to do. And I'm not good at that. Just forget about that. Care about everybody. Show up and teach the word. Pray for one another. 
some simple thing that you never thought had any value to anybody. You just decided and showed up there and God used it and somebody's life was changed forever. And we'll find a lot of that out in eternity. We don't even know what we're doing sometimes, but we just showed up and cared about some hurting soul. So the plot was formed. Now, why did the Jews react to Paul or to Christ before him or Peter? Because they were invested in the idea that they were going to have the kingdom and temple Judaism. And they didn't want anybody interrupting that or challenging it. Saul of Tarsus was one who was like that. And it wasn't the way it was going to be. Saul of Tarsus was breathing out threats of slaughter after he heard Stephen preach and saw him martyred and affirmed that he should be martyred. How could you watch another person, Stephen, who cited scripture after scripture that Paul knew to be true, Saul of Tarsus, because he knew the scriptures. How could you watch that? I've never seen a person martyred like that, but Paul did. How could he watch that and, and then decide, I'm going to go kill more Christians? Why was that a threat? Because it was a threat to everything Paul believed in. His status in Judaism as it was right then. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew his tribe, trained, and so on. And God had mercy on him. Dear ones, to encourage you that you are willing to hear what God said and ask him to change your life, to ask him for wisdom. And the simple act of praying for one another is an amazing thing. Why would that mean anything? What is that? It shows that God cares for us and we care for each other. If somebody has cancer, pray for them. Somebody is lacking. If we can help, we do. That's just simple Christianity. We don't have to have a cathedral. That We don't need that. We need each other. We need the Lord. So why was Saul so angry? Because it threatened his hopes. And um, then after his conversion, he preached on the hope of the resurrection to eternal life. That's what we need. So the plot is caused by jealousy, pride, nationalistic fervor, and a lack of willingness to search all the scriptures. You tell us the scriptures about how we're going to conquer, fine, but don't tell us the scriptures that the Lamb of God was slain. Don't preach Isaiah 53. Don't preach the various Psalms. So that's what the issue was. Now, some of these words here, I uh, let me blow this up a little bit. In my notes, Whoop. three and four. Let me give you a little overview. Doctor Schnabel, the three months that Paul spent in Greece, 
that is in Achaia, is to be connected with his extended stay in Corinth over the winter of A.D. 56 and 57. Probably from there, he wrote Romans. When, when travel, was, that's my statement, when travel was avoided and navigation on the Mediterranean was closed. So it's winter, you don't go out there. According to Romans 16:23, Gaius was his host in Corinth, where he wrote the letter to the Christians in Rome on the eve of his departure for Jerusalem, Romans 15:25, and where he finalized arrangements for the collections that he put together for the church in Jerusalem, 1 Corinthians 16:3. Details and activities that Luke does not mention. But then later it comes up. By the way, do you know what happened to that collection for the saints in Jerusalem? It's not mentioned after Paul gets there and the riot starts in Acts 21. It's not really mentioned. It's mentioned in Acts 24, 17 later. So there was this push to have a collection for the saints that were suffering to bring there to Jerusalem. Why was Paul so motivated about this collection? To preserve the unity of the church and not have two churches, a Jewish church attached to the temple and other churches scattered, a Gentile church and a Jewish church. He wanted one new man, Ephesians 2.15. That was just pressing on him. Two chapters of 2 Corinthians are about that offering. It wasn't an offering for Paul. It was an offering for the saints that were suffering. Jerusalem. But when he gets there, it's not even mentioned in Acts. But, it's, but it, does, it is mentioned in Acts 24, 17. Why? Because of the blow-up. The zeal for the temple and for the law was so great that most of the Christians in Jerusalem rejected Paul. And then he ended up on trial. We'll get there. I'm trying to get ahead. I mean, keep moving so we end up in Acts 21 and beyond. That's where it's all focused, going back to Jerusalem. Jesus was rejected in Jerusalem. Paul will be rejected in Jerusalem. Very interesting. Even after a significant Christian presence there. Paul was always fighting against people who wanted the law. Yeah. Galatians, uh, Brian said Paul was always dealing with that, fighting that. Galatians is about that. Because you know how hard it is to give up everything that defined your identity for your whole life going back generations? You know how hard it is? Let's just do a smaller illustration. You know how hard it is for someone in Utah to become a Christian and stand against Mormonism? Like Ed Decker is one that comes to mind. The God Makers, he wrote that book. Because generations of people have an identity invested in that. And it's not just, it's not wicked. It is wicked spiritually. But if you look at it, it's nice. It's not like Rome with the gladiators and using themselves as the Christians are tortured. It doesn't seem so bad. But that's sometimes what keeps people from the gospel. We're not so bad. We're nice. 
We're, we're kind. We've got a nice little society. So how many people are, born, are willing to listen to the gospel in, for example, Utah? It's hard to do. Ed Decker wrote this book, The Godmakers, if you want to read that. So Jerusalem was like that. We have this, and we've had it since the temple was rebuilt for us. You know, sort of a, sort of a case in the time of Nehemiah, but then Herod gave him the great temple. But uh, Jesus prophesied its destruction. So um, he goes on, Schnabel. It has plausibly been suggested that Jews who planned to travel to Jerusalem as pilgrims for the Passover festival, taking the same ship that Paul would take, hoped to kill him and route to Judea. This is just one possibility based on what we do know. Back to Schnabel. When Paul was informed of the plot, he abandoned his plan to travel from Greece to Syria, Sion 1523, by taking a ship from Corinth across the Aegean Sea. Instead, he decided to return, and then he gives you the Greek word, hupostaphrain, to Syria and Jerusalem by first traveling overland to Macedonia. Now, notice here I highlighted the word decided, the word gnome, the word gnome, is what is translated decided. You can think about this. When referring to pleasure or purpose means decision, as in Acts 20, verse 3, according to Word Study New Testament Dictionary. It was his decision, conviction, opinion. Here's what point I wanted to make about that. In Acts, two things happen that end up with the same result. In some cases, there's a direct divine intervention like the Macedonian vision in other cases Paul makes a decision that's what it says here in either case God's purpose goes on and they end up at the right place at the right time the myth that many people perpetrate is that you don't get a supernatural revelation that God's not guiding your life now, I've had both things happen. Something is obviously supernatural and sometimes make a decision. But we end up at the right place at the right time unless we rebel against God and go our own way. Does that make sense? So this isn't a constriction of Paul's freedom. He's making a decision. And what happens because of it? Well, this journey to encourage the churches, he still ends up where he's going. Later, he'll get on a trip that does shipwreck. God uses that too, and there's supernatural guidance. The two are part and parcel. But some people say, if you didn't get a supernatural revelation, you're a pathetic Christian, you don't know what you're doing. That's not true. It's not true. God's not going to, he has all of the means at his disposal to get us to the right place at the right time, including deciding not to try to travel in the middle of winter. That's what we decide. 
Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Pray for again that Eric would um, teach us the word as we know he will, and may we hear what you say through your word and be encouraged. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy in our lives, and thank you for the fellowship we have with one another and with you in Jesus' name. Amen.